Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast that injects a good deal of optimism and possibility into your life at home and at work. Conversations with thought leaders and everyday people shine the light on what works and amplifies those everyday micro moments of positivity, irrespective of what else is going on. You'll be energized by lots of practical tips, inspiring you to live a truly satisfying and meaningful life. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. I'm your host, Robin Stratton-Burkessel. And today, I'm super, super excited to engage in a conversation with someone I met on Twitter several years ago. We found value in each other's content and we discovered we had a shared interest in appreciative inquiry. So our retweets and shares grew over the years via the web, and then most recently we engaged in a longish chat on Facebook, to the point where I asked my guest Richard if he'd be willing to continue our conversation in public on my podcast show. And I was so humbled he graciously said yes. So please let me welcome Deacon Richard Manley Tannis to the show. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's quite exciting to be here with you. Great. So Richard, that was my story of our meeting. What's yours? What's my story? My story uh, uh, goes back to probably about seven years ago when I was first beginning uh, my doctoral exploration. And I was introduced to Appreciative Inquiry by my uh, friend and mentor, Maureen McKenna. And uh, we met in um, a manner that as I was leaving that particular doctoral exploration, I had been introduced to AI as a methodology for research. And I had wanted to do something. um, I had wanted to have a practical um, experience with Appreciative Inquiry rather than just what I was learning through the academic lens. And so she was going to be holding a workshop, um, and I um, excitedly uh, registered for that. And then, unfortunately, um, owing to circumstance, the course had to be canceled. And so uh, Maureen and I connected um, uh, over a phone call and said, you know, is there any way that this could work? You come, you know, highly recommended. And she said, well, I've never done this before, but after this conversation, would you be interested in exploring this in sort of a virtual way? And um, I said yes. She gave me a long reading list of uh, appreciative inquiry um, uh, materials, and some of those videos included yours, uh, the one that you did on play. And that was my introduction to you in a virtual TED talk sort of way. Wow, that's so fascinating. I'm glad I asked you. <laughs> yeah, and you actually say that um, that... Over the years, um, it's it's you've worked with AI in the process of um, training lay teams about social media and evangelism. Mm-hmm. So, how are you, how are you using social media in that work? So I've been, um, as I think many people that I meet in the community have um, multiple hats um, and. To pin us down to one hat, I think, is often difficult. Uh, and so in one of the hats that I have, I've been online a very, very long time. Um, in fact, my first 
job online in my undergraduate in classical history was doing a research for a professor when the internet was just text-based and links. And uh, since that time, uh, I, I currently work for a gaming company in California. I run their online community um, and have been doing that for 13 years. Um, and in that time, I have seen people who have never met one another in an embodied sense um, express compassion and care for one another that's quite moving. Mm. Um, and I've seen uh, being part of a being part of a faith-based context that is modernist in orientation, um, often the lens through which we see things like social media, um, which exists in that sort of postmodern space, we try to understand it through our modernist lens. And so the narrative that comes out is often um, dismissive or um, misunderstanding of it. And so the experience that I've had being online so long um, and discovering appreciative inquiry as a way to understand postmodernity to make it accessible to those who live and breathe still through modernist structures has been an exciting space to be able to have a conversation. Mm. And particularly appreciative inquiry, when I use it with um, philosophically, not as a process, but philosophically, um, in those um, training opportunities is, is exciting because it allows the church, in my experience, to have conversations that I would offer um, especially mainstream Protestant churches, haven't had for up to, I would say, almost 1,700 years. Wow. Yeah, and that comes out in um, a lot of your writings on your blog, A Deacon's mm -hmm. Musing, um, some very beautiful stuff there. But let me just go back a little bit, Richard. I'm really curious um, in in reading your blog and um, you know, looking a little bit into your background, your bio often starts with Richard's family arrived from the Ottoman Empire mm -hmm. in the mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. That sounds hugely exotic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and was that to Canada? Uh, that was to Canada. Um, I have always been fascinated by the how quickly we forget our history. And I think Canada is just another one of those places and contexts where um, in the current discourse in my context, we talk about um, settler or colonial, colonial um, identity, um, mm. of which the church has a long, unfortunate history that it's beginning to address. And I think we easily forget where we come from. And I think that part of the, um, I forget the word you just used, exotic uh, nature of that um, choice of introducing myself is hopefully reflective for people who are reading the blog to ask themselves, so where do I come from? Mm. Um, and what is the history that I might have forgotten? Um, and for me, that connects with appreciative inquiry in the sense of uh, when we begin to mine our past and confront perhaps the hurts and choices we've collectively made, we also discover the places of beauty and potential that may that inform the choices that we made to change. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, and adding to that, also um, deepen an appreciation from where we actually came from. Absolutely, um, and that curiosity, which is just so valuable. So, given your current role um, as, and I think I have this right, um, as Minister for Evangelism, Mission, and Church Development with the Winnipeg Presbytery. I just want curious to know, was there any um, spiritual tradition in your upbringing? 
that's an interesting question. Um, so officially, no, I, I grew up unchurched in the language of um, uh, church theory and development. Um, I grew up with, a, uh, I would say, a strong sense of the holy, um, a strong sense of a universality. Um, uh, at a scientific level, I sometimes um, go to uh, uh, what's called in quantum physics the Planck scale. Um, but I've always had a sense of something larger and unifying. Um, but growing up in the church, no, the church in my experience um, was not a welcoming place, especially owing to my own birth context. Um, and it was quite patriarchal um, and quite dismissive of the background um, into which I was born. So um, mm -hmm. I was quite typical of my generation uh, demographically of uh, distrusting human institutions, and one of those would definitely be the church. Mm -hmm. Well, with my cultural imprint too, coming from Australia, I um, also had that distrust of anything that was kind of dogmatic or authoritarian. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my narrative as well. Um, well it, go ahead. Oh, that it, it, it's interesting to me. The, so the question, of, did I have that? And the current work that I'm doing um, with the Taos Institute um, is an intentional exploration of that very question, mm. of that very context of both um, not feeling an affinity for institutionalized religion and yet finding myself in this um, space and time to actually explore why I am actually chosen to be part of institutional religion. Mm. Mm. That reminds me that you're actually completing your PhD now, right, with the Taos Institute. I'm um, as of this weekend, I will have um, submitted my entire first draft to my advisor. Um, Congratulations! Yeah, um, I suspect there's much more work to do, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been an amazing journey so far. So, say a little bit about that journey. What have you been exploring in this time? Uh, so, I've. Uh, been using uh, social construction, um, uh, specifically positioning myself not as a Christian, but as a postmodernist um, who has chosen Christianity as a lens. Um, and so as such, I've been using um, postmodernity to have a conversation that the Christian church has had for millennia, but specifically looking at a very old theological discourse that's about 1700 years ago old that has been called the um, uh, Pelagian debate, and for those who don't know that, the, probably the, the what we have inherited at is called uh, the Augustinian understanding of original sin. Mm -hmm. And the original debate was whether or not humans are inherently blessed or we are inherently broken. Mm -hmm. And positioning myself with the, uh, social construction as a postmodernist, I'm asking, does it have to be either or? Do we have to? Um, continue to hold on to that binary, and if we don't, what are the implications? And then in my final chapter, I use appreciative inquiry as a practical application that comes out of that theological exploration. Mm. That must have just opened up so much for you. Can you share one particular, like, ha-ha moment or something that stands out that was just truly meaningful or something you can reflect on in your course of research absolutely um, I, that would be lovely to share um, I think what I've been struck by the most especially being within various uh, communities with uh, the Taos Institute and those who are working with 
social construction in practical ways, such as narrative therapy or appreciative inquiry, um, has been the openness and the ability in those what some would call secular contexts to have sacred conversations, which unfortunately within the institutional paradigm um, often don't occur, which is uh, a paradox, mm. um, uh, uh, mm. ironic, and and it has allowed me not to be saddened by that, to, but to say, so if the secular context is at a space to have these deep, rich, generative conversations, mm-hmm. and the institution isn't, what is it that I can bring from those who are actively wanting to change the world to an institution that I think at its heart is about changing the world? Right, yeah. Yeah, in reading some of your posts, words such as and the role of story, um, mm. generativity and abundance are words that you use when you write about the relationship between AI and your faith. Mm. And there's a quote that um, – I've got a couple of quotes here that just were so meaningful to me, like remembering what looked good I mean, is to reawaken us from our apathy. Mm. Um, so um, – so it's it's that narrative, that storytelling, and how interesting that we are doing that in the secular world, as you say, the well, secular context. Absolutely, and I there's a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, uh, who um, is in in himself a paradox, and was a Lutheran pastor who resisted the Nazis, chose to go back to Germany during World War II, was arrested and ultimately executed close to the end of the war. Um, and in the papers and letters that we have that he wrote while in um, custody uh, uh, in prison, uh, they're called uh, letters from prison, he talks about the world that he sees coming as the post-Christian world, mm-hmm. the world where the best of the values of the church um, are passed on to a post-Christian secular mm-hmm. culture. And so it's always interesting to me when I sit down with, you know, in church context, then there's often a lament about where are the youth today? And in my experience, the reality is they're living out the very values that we taught um, without getting stuck in the doctrine and the dogmas that have so often mm. hurt other people. Mm. Um, well, that's very encouraging. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I agree. One of the things that I would love to talk to you about is um, something that you're, you're embarking on in your writings, on your blog, mm. is to start focusing on um, the principles and how they're, you know, the intersection between them and appreciative inquiry and the theological orientation that you have. Mm. And the one that uh, you've just published is around constru- constructionist principle. Mm-hmm. And again, a couple of quotes that really meant something to me. You talk about truth-speaking is not about judging, but about opening the doors to the potential that arises when words are taken seriously. Um, could you say more about that? Words um, are taken seriously. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's, and I don't, uh, this probably won't come as a surprise, um, I don't necessarily like labels, but unfortunately they, they are used to describe. Um, and some of the descriptions in regard to the lens, theological lens I come with has been called progressive or liberal. Um, And in that uh, discourse, which goes back to the 60s, um, there's been a a wrestling within the tradition uh, about 
who owns truth in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there has been a movement of literalism, um, which in, in my experience with any theological discourse um, and any, uh, any faith discourse, when we take our sacred texts literally, um, mm. it, it, becomes, it becomes very not only dangerous, but difficult to comprehend. When, in fact, most of the theologies that we have, whether Christian and, in my experience, interfaith, are always grounded in story, um, not in literalism. And so taking seriously, to me, speaks to um, a commitment to interrogate words in a way that opens them to be generative, to be life-giving, as opposed to, in my context, I would say soul-devouring or... Uh, a secular parallel, um, uh, rather than soul devouring, but life destroying or minimizing. Um, right. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I could tell a story here. Um, so um, I I grew up. There was no religion really in my um, upbringing, but my grandmother was a um, a Presbyterian. And this is, you know, back in Australia. And she and she was insistent that her grandchildren went to Sunday school and got uh, christened and well, got christened first, and they went to Sunday school and then did, um, what was it, um, Holy Communion? No, what, what do you do? I've even forgotten the term now. It could be, uh, could be confirmation. Confer- or- confirmation, that's right. And so um, I actually became a, what I call a practicing Christian. Um, I actually enjoyed Sunday school and I enjoyed the stories, I enjoyed the scriptures and I enjoyed the community. I mean, I, my first boyfriend was, you know, when I was 10 <laughs> and he was part of Sunday school. So I really enjoyed the whole community aspect of that. When I was 16, Richard, I went to see Billy Graham in Sydney, mm. Australia. I was so horrified mm. by the message of hell and brimstone that it turned me off Christianity. And so I, I decided that I wasn't going to be a practicing Christian anymore. But I'm so grateful to have that kind of discipline, that background. And now that I'm, you know, so much older and exploring a lot of different traditions, uh, you know, spirituality is actually very important to me and I think to a lot of people. And so, um, but it's not following any one particular faith. Um, but I don't know, I just, I'm just sharing that with you because it was something, it just, it was about you know, the message of gloom and doom mm-hmm. and that we are sinners. So if I will share, reply with a story to your sharing, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I've been doing in my doctoral work is each, each chapter uh, begins with a personal vignette. Um, and I use different storytelling modes to do that. And my story, I think, complements yours in the sense that when I was five, um, in a Syrian Orthodox context, my mother and I were um, going to greet the priests. Um, and in the Orthodox tradition, before you eat, you greet your priests. Um, and you are introduced uh, to whoever is the visiting dignitary. And this time it was um, my great, uh, was our, was the Roman Catholic counterpart. And um, my birth order in my family of origin is I was the eldest grandson of uh, what, what is called an economos priest, which um, carries with it a certain import. 
Um, I was also, in my birth context, born out of wedlock to somebody outside of my faith, uh, outside of my ethnic origin. And so um, I was walking paradox, if you will. And uh, our priest, in uh, the introduction to his Roman Catholic counterpart, in no uncertain terms, introduced my mother and I as, and this is the bastard child. Mm. And I knew in that moment, and it's central to my doctoral work, is, uh, is the question, is, is love enough? Mm. Um, and so I, and I think the church has done itself a, a disservice, especially those considered mainstream or progressive in that we have not engaged in a discourse um, that has either been accessible or has been heard um, in experiences such as ours. Mm. Yeah. And hence post-Christianity, this movement towards post-Christianity. And as you were saying earlier, you know, these foundational principles of what Christianity represents in the truest sense hasn't been practiced for 1,700 years in, in, in a lot of areas. I mean, that's a big generalization, of course. Yes. And getting back to, um, forgetting our history, it is interesting to me when I have had the trust and the opportunity to have conversations with those who are seeking, um, who have come from a context where faith, Christian faith was part of their upbringing, but for appropriate, um, and often survival reasons have left to introduce them to a spirituality and mysticism that is in fact millennia old within the Christian narrative, that there is no awareness that that has existed. So I'm thinking of people like um, uh, Julian of Norwich or the mm. Celtic mysticism or the Egyptian desert fathers. Right. There, there is that history, but it gets silenced by the dominant discourse. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Um, I want to offer you another quote. <laughs> Um, and it's from that same uh, most recent blog piece. You say that you suggest that the word um, mm. as a universal source of energy and, you know, it's coming down to, you know, when words are taken seriously. So you follow on to say that you suggest that the word as a universal source of energy is infinite potential. <laughs> this potential is limited only by our imagination. And when we recognise where we have been, we can dream anew. Um, and th- that speaks to what you've been saying about knowing our history. But I have a question around that. Is there anything you want to say to that before I ask my question? I think I'll wait for the question. <laughs> okay. So I'm wondering, is that what is meant in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God? Yes, I would. I think so. Uh, I think, and so the next one of the next blogs will be about the poetic principle, and the word that we use when we literalize it, to me, is weaponizing language. Whereas the poetic, the the imagery that comes with exciting the imagination, it should be both humbling. In, the, in that sense of when a child looks up at the sky for the first time in a zone where there are no city lights to obscure the wonder that is the Milky Way, um, should be humbled and also struck with imagination with no limitation. Mm. Um, and so, fact, and this connects with the first question you asked, taking words seriously. I, my, my doctoral advisor, and I, I hope I, I'm uh, framing what I've learned from him uh, accurately and well, is that 
the language that we use to describe reality, whether that's faith, whether that's science, whether that's uh, atheism, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't really matter. The question in this postmodern context is do, we, is, do we commit ourselves to a form of discourse that allows us to be sensible and articulate um, with those who have, a, uh, who have tapped into this universal energy in a different way, um, with respect, without assuming that we have the right answer? Um, and I can wax poetic and philosophical about that <laughs> ad nauseum, but taking seriously our commitment to whatever it is we commit to, I think allows us to, with integrity, enter into conversations with respect as opposed to comp competition. That is, especially when around questions of reality, um, quickly become violent, mm. regardless of whether or not there's physical harm. And by violent, do you mean what? Um, I, I, I think we, um, I think we too often, um, again, literalize and, and compartmentalize the term of violence. I, for me, violence is when, when we walk away from a conversation feeling diminished. Yes. Um, but it's when we walk away, and even more fundamentally, when we walk away diminishing ourselves. Yes. Um, and and doubting, as opposed to. Um, conversations that are life fulfilling that I can walk away sitting down with, you know, whether that's a interfaith conversation, whether that's a, a ecumenical conversation, whether that's a secular conversation going, wow, I never thought about that before. Mm. I actually need to think about that in order for me on this path to grow. Mm. For me, the poetic principle, um, as you describe, is really um, helping to understand all the different perspectives and all the different lenses that we each bring to a situation. Um, it, you know, it's not only that imaginative capacity that you described, you know, the kid looking up at the, you know, the Milky Way in wonder and using his or her imagination, but it's also you look at something and, you know, you tell a story from your own perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's those multiple perspectives, which is that brings in the generativity, right, that we can build on each other and really, truly listen and be gracious with each other's, um, you know, perspectives on something. Yeah, and for me, that taps into the piece that comes out of the practical application of the social construction uh, academic work that I've been doing, which is that generativity, that awe, that creativity um, is spurred in community. It, it's not a relative. It's not relativism in the sense of the individual aspiring to greatness. It's when we are in that dialogue that's mutual and we begin to make meaning together, yes. um, the world becomes unlocked. Like the, the, the potential that we are collectively is always much more than what we can aspire to individually. Yeah. And of the principles, um, Richard, um, I mean, I think the, the, the principles of appreciative inquiry, and, and you've referenced the fact that there are five foundational, there are five emerging, um, and I, I love them all. And it's, it's really kind of living, the embodiment of those principles that give lived out day in and day out, where it really makes such a difference, not only in the relationship that you have with yourself, but the relationship with others and the relationship you have with the world at large. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious... 
Is there one principle that when you first started learning about these, and maybe you had them all intuitively anyway, I don't know, that really um, was something that truly resonated with you and you got it straight away, where others you might have had to kind of ponder a little bit more or read a bit more? Hmm. And I don't even know what the answer is for me. I'd have to think about that. But um, It's a good question. Yeah. Because I'm teaching advanced applications of AI um, hmm. up at Champlain College and I do focus a lot on the principles and I ask my students that question. Um, so I, th- I, I have uh, two responses to the question. Um, de- definitely intuitive uh, when I was first introduced to them. Um, and I go back to when I first met Maureen, my mentor, um, and she talked about when she, f- and this sort of connects with your context, when she first started doing this training um, in the secular world, when, when she decided to hang up her own shingle and start doing um, workshops, she said it would take, you know, with, with, you know in, a, in a corporate context, it, would take, it could take a week to do this program. And it was hard work. And she's now at a place, she said that sometimes it takes two days. Um, because the principles have become in her experience, and I would echo this in my in my context that a lot of people already have this intuitively. What appreciative inquiry, especially the principles, does is it wraps it in a philosophical opportunity for people to say, "Oh, that's what I've been doing." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, to your question, for me, um, I would say that there are two principles. And they all dance together, right? It's not an either or. But Absolutely. The, the two that, for me, um, at this moment, with your question, that are leading the dance um, would be the uh, uh, the question of the inquiry and the the poetic principle. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always loved questions. Um, I I think when I used to, before discovering appreciative inquiry before um, uh, institutional religion as a lens. Um, I was uh, involved in restorative justice and community-based um, um, opportunities that were contrary to an adjudicative process um, here in Canada. And even then, I knew that the right question was liberating, um, that it allowed the people with whom I was doing mediation and conflict resolution, if you could find the right question, um, mm-hmm. uh, backs would be, backs, shoulders would let go, egos could be let free um, and vulnerability could occur. Mm. Um, and the, the poetic, because uh, one of the aspects that I have found, and I hope I do well um, as one of the features of my blog, um, is um, what I call micro-poetry. And the poetic has always been has always been central to me. And I think one of the reasons I decided to opt into organized contextual religion when I finally did um, specifically Christianity, was the depth of poetry that is in those sacred scriptures, mm-hmm. which too often um, gets glossed over. Um, like the Song of Solomon, if as an example of poetry of um, erotic, um, intimate, embodied vision of the way that people can dance with one another, um, both literally, figuratively, and spiritually, is a piece of poetry that's mind-blowing yeah yeah and it's as we as we you know what we focus on grows and when we choose what we choose to focus our attention to it makes a difference but it even it's not describing what's going on it's actually creating it yeah so that's that's that 
poetic principle, I guess. You know, we're creating it um, as we describe it or as we use language mm. or as we interpret a piece of art or listen to a piece of music. Um, there's that aspect to it too. Richard, you mentioned your blog. Now, you've been writing this blog for about 10 years, right? I have. Um, what was the origins of that? Because so, you've got so much stuff there. And I mean <laughs> stuff in the nicest way. There's, there's a lot of diversity, but there's definitely obviously the common thread or a number of threads that go through. But yeah, yeah. What, tell us about the origins of your writing. I think you do so, it with from love. I hope so. <laughs> um, I, I hope it's invitational. I hope it's not me. Um, I don't think. I hope it's not. Um, and this is a constant, I think, for anybody who blogs, um, is uh, the question of uh, pontificating or navel-gazing. Yeah. Um, uh, I hope it's invitational. Um, so the, the emerging, uh, the, the place it comes from, and you might, again, I don't think this is irony. Um, so in my United Church of Canada context, um, in the mid to late uh, 2000s, uh, began a process of um, ex, uh, a program called Emerging Spirit. And Emerging Spirit was very much grounded in that conversation about post-modernity meets modernity mm-hmm. and what are the implications for the church. Mm-hmm. And as somebody newly in the church, I was um, honored with the invitation to begin to start blogging. Um, and so for me, the blogging has been uh, a constant dance between um, the church walls, the world beyond the walls, and how to introduce um, how to introduce generational realities that share values but don't even know each other exists. Um, and that quite literally in many cases is true. Um, that those outside of the walls um, since Generation X, called Millennials, now Generation Z, as we move away from the early 70s um, to the generations now, uh, often have no experience whatsoever mm-hmm. of organized religion. And the, what they do have is often a traditional media narrative of um, good and bad, black and white, mm-hmm. um, and limits dialogue. Mm-hmm. So how has that worked for you? I mean, how are you, how is the outreach going? How are you bringing new generations into understanding? I remember the first time I was in a ministerial, um, which a ministerial, for those who don't know, is uh, often an ecumenical gathering, which ecumenical is a big fancy word for people with different Christian beliefs um, coming together. Um, uh, and in this ministerial, we were sharing why we were doing what we were doing. And we went around the table and um, I said to those gathered, and I I still believe this quite sincerely, I don't actually care what people believe. Mm -hmm. Um, What I I hope to bring into the world is a model that, um, do we model compassion um, and uh, non-judging energy uh, in a world and in a place filled with potential? So your question, how has that been working for me? The the gift is I get to have conversations with people globally who um, identify as Christian, who are identify as seekers, who reject organized religion, and usually they're constructive, respectful conversations. I walk away with saying to myself, that was a gift. Mm. Um, and for me, that it's about the dialogue. It's about the yeah, it's about the dialogue that changes those who engage with it without feeling I have to convince anybody. And if somebody says, 
you know, the lens that you have really intrigues me. Can you tell me more? Mm-hmm. And then we'll have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The dialogue and the connection. Um, you know, I interviewed Ken Gergen some time mm-hmm. ago um, and asked him to explain social constructionism. And um, and he, he he I mean he was just so delightful such such a lovely man, and he he said you know the world is no longer you know according to Descartes I think therefore I am it's I connect therefore I am, and so you know this is where I look upon you know the tools and the technologies that's helping to to democratize the world you know for good and evil. Um, not the democratization part, but you know, it's it's just it's just the evolution of where we're at right now, and how we can use these tools very wisely, and this outreach, and the people that you get to to speak with and connect with that ordinarily you may not. Um, so I understand what you're saying and how you know your blog is is um, facilitating that connection. And I like the word you just used, and it's one often when I'm doing the, in particular, the social media and evangelism opportunities, is um, are, I think it's a constant question through human history. Are we wise enough for the tools that we create? Right. Um, and what do we do with them? Um, oh, oh, and I, I mean, if you look at the futurist conversation and the implications of where we're going technologically, and I think getting back to Ken's response, the collectivity that we are being invited into um, is unprecedented. Um, and we have, we have, I mean, if you look at the April Springs, if you look at um, Black Lives Matters, if you look at what's happening in Standing Rock in the US, uh, that, that collectivity is mm-hmm. moving people in ways that has never happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what do we do with that potential? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, as you said, um, there, you know, this, the, what we cho- how we choose to use, make use of the technologies um, either nurtures the social good or does not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the power and the potential of mm-hmm. when we explore the wisdom of the, of the best we've done in the past. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation in my last um, episode and she was talking about the new human and the new world. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the central theme of the conversation was that we can – um, evolve as an individual and we, we have the neuroscience backing us up. We know what's happening, you know, at the cellular level in our bodies. It's all even, you know, the science, not only technology, but the sciences are changing so rapidly. But it's only when we actually connect with others and we, we co-create and we collaborate, that's when it's most useful and that's when it works. And so for me, I go to having been online this long, and this, in particular, the online community. I was telling you that I've had the honor to be um, to curate and moderate for over a decade now. Mm-hmm. I have seen people generously care for one another um, in ways, in times of grief, in times of illness, in times of death, um, both financially, um, um, but emotionally, extend. Um, such tenderness with never actually having met that person. And in many cases, never actually having seen that person, Mm. except through the word, except through text, except through stories. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That kindness and compassion can come through. Is there anything that's coming up for you right now that you would like to share that we haven't yet talked about it as we come to a conclusion today, Richard? Um. 
I was asked a question uh, within one of the communities within the United Church context I, I find myself about a community where I've experienced um, nurture. And as I know, and I just saw in your, your recent mail out, um, the gathering of the Appreciative Inquiry community this August um, at the David Cooper Writer Appreciative Inquiry Center. And when I met that community for the first time, I was reminded of the choice people make to change the world. Hmm. Um, and I was reminded of, I think I've held on enough to it, of that idealism of youth that when nurtured with the wisdom of age can literally change the world. Mm. Um, and so mm. it's a reminder of, and you've already said this, but it's also the people we surround ourselves that create the world we see. Um, and the choice and often the privilege to be able to do that. Because I mean, the reality is I don't want to um, diminish that the reality is this very conversation is grounded in privilege, that we can have this conversation. Mm. But how do we open opportunities for those who don't have choice to realize that there are choices? Mm -hmm. um, and that when we begin to choose to surround ourselves with those who love us and help us shine, as opposed to those who might be using us, um, whether that's um, the reality of gangs or that's the reality of terrorism, um, mm -hmm. How, how do we go into those spaces with this lens of appreciation mm -hmm. um, into a world that I think is longing for it? Yeah. Yep. How do we? And um, coming back to sharing one's personal story mm. with one other and then growing that capacity to open up and truly listen is just mm. Extraordinary, I think, you know, is grounded in the stories that we tell each other. And, you know, the narratives that we live ourselves into and recognizing that we do have the choices to change those narratives. Hmm. Yeah. I would, yeah I would, when, I, when I shifted away from using um, restorative justice to transformative justice. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Reminds me of a, a, a time when I was working with uh, in, indigenous elders in a mediation and we went around that we ran around the circle and and the in the in the victor offender mediation program the, the victim had shared a story the offender had shared a story and when there was space um and if uh, an elder was able to join us there would be a reflective piece and this one elder paused and space was made to hear whatever the elder was going to share and then the elder looked up and said now you see you hear each other's story you can't hurt each other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that was just a reminder that mm -hmm. when we make space regardless of what binary we think we're having a conversation with another person. Mm -hmm. uh, when we know we, and hear another person's story, I, it's been my experience, we can't actually hurt another person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just as I say in my TED talk, and I say it so often that, you know, when we hear somebody else's story, it's their history, mm. and it's such a privilege. Mm. Um, yeah. And the byline of your A Deacon's Musings blog site website is musing reflecting and acting i think the acting piece is also key when i um first met um sheila mcnamee she 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 pushed the group that we were um with uh i think for a long time the the, the buzzword in leadership training was reflective leadership mm -hmm. she introduced the word uh reflexive 
mm-hmm. leadership. And for me, those three words sort of encapsulate that, that it's great to be a thinker. It's great to have communities of privilege where we can sit down and do case studies and talk. But if we're not actually mm. doing anything with that in the world, then in my experience, we're just actually propagating another binary. Yeah. Um, yeah. As opposed to saying, so let's go into the world and not only change it, but be changed by it. Mm. Yeah. And again, just thinking back to um, some of Ken's words when we were speaking, he talked about we need the practitioners. Thank God for you people who are the practitioners, <laughs> which was such a lovely validating thing for him to say. I kind of was so touched by that. And uh, yeah, and I mean, it's because of that that I have was introduced to Taos and am doing what I am. Because, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. If, yeah. If, if we're just reflecting then we're just creating four systems that already exist. Mm. Yes, sir. Well, Richard, Manley, Tanis, this has been fantastic. I, I'm going to put links to A. Deacon's Musing, to some of your um, wonderful writings, to, um, to all your social media links. And this is episode positivitystrategist.com slash PS65. So anyone who's kind of out there jogging or driving in their car can remember this PS65. They can go to the show notes page and find out all those links and connect with you if they so choose to. I just want to say thank you, Richard. It's been a fantastic conversation. There's so much more that we could do. And... um, Anything, just finally, anything else you would like to say by way of conclusion? Um, thank you. Uh, I often end things with sh- uh, social media with hashtag shine on. Yes. Um, and for you and for your listeners, um, if you've heard anything, I hope that you were all meant to shine. So shine on. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Hash shine on. Thank you. So you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening. And remember, what you focus on grows. So grow towards your best.